Hey there, welcome to the Changemakers podcast. It's Dave Corlett here, your host and the business director at the creative agency Shape By. And if you haven't listened before, welcome along. This is a podcast that is all about creativity in B2B tech marketing. So we speak to a huge range of different people from across the spectrum of marketing within this world that we call B2B tech, um, which incorporates so many different categories, facets, industries and whatnot. And what we're really trying to find is those nuggets of inspiration that can help you be more creative and experimental and bold and brave in all the work that you do. I'm not actually going to make this intro too long, to be honest, because the podcast, the episode that we've got for you today is actually really long, but for really good reason. If we're thinking about really top level, inspirational, go-to-market strategies within the world of tech. There isn't any better guest that I could think of than my guest today, Alan Cohen, because he's been there, seen and done it all. Right from the early days, you know, in the heady days of the 90s, where he was working at IBM and Cisco, helping to really build, you know, what he called the backbone of the internet, effectively. We're talking about the early days of Wi-Fi, the early days of e-commerce. And Alan and his team were really, really instrumental in building that. But Alan's role within those early days was actually figuring out, okay, we've got this great technology. How do we take it to market? What matters? Why would customers buy this? Why would people use it? Why would they use it over another product? And why is it going to change their lives for the better? So we start there and then we dive into lots and lots of different areas that go to market. And we also touch on something that both of us are really passionate about at the moment, which is the world of cybersecurity how businesses within that world can take their products and services out to market in a way that really matters in such a pivotal, important industry. So loads and loads that we cover, and I'm sure that you're going to enjoy this chat. Alan is such an illuminating and experienced, engaging individual, and I had such fun talking to him. So here we go. This is episode 24 of the Changemakers podcast with Alan Cohen of DCVC. Hope you enjoy Hey, Alan, welcome to The Changemakers. How are you doing today? Hey, Dave, I'm great. Thanks for having me. That's a real, real pleasure. Listen, there's so, so much I want to dive into with you in this chat. I know that you've held multiple roles across many years of working in go-to-market functions, leadership roles, advising, investing, and everything in between. So I'm sure there's a whole lot that our listeners are going to get out of this conversation. Where are you now at the moment? Are you in, You're on West Coast, right? I am, yes, I'm in the East Bay of San Francisco, which is the, the lesser known bay side of the bay. Very nice. And I noticed on your yeah. LinkedIn profile, amongst all those illustrious job titles, you've got obedient worker bee at home listed for the last 32 years. Uh, so I take it you're well and truly family man, first and foremost. Uh, it's important to me. And I also know my place in the universe. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Listen, listen, back onto the, the career stuff, if I may, if we can start with that. So as I said, you are a seasoned investor, advisor, marketer, leader, whatever you want to call it. But um, it'd be really good just to get a potted history, a whistle-stop tour, if you like, of your career so far, leading to where you are now. Yeah, I'd say that I have, maybe to make it easy, there's really kind of three phases. Um, in my first phase, I'm a failed novelist. <laughs> and I, I actually wrote one of the most unreadable fiction books in the history of the planet, unpublishable, nearly unreadable. But I, so very early in my career, I was attracted to narratives. Uh, I wasn't as great at creating them, 
in print <laughs> that way. My second case, I actually, now. yeah, I worked um, as a journalist and I actually worked as a foreign policy analyst um, oh, wow. in, in Washington, D.C. And, and then in my third phase, I was kind of an accidental tourist that made his way into tech. I uh, had to get out of, I mean, I think if you work that close up to government, um, there's only a certain amount of youth you have to spend on that. And it was, uh, it was time to, to move on. So I actually went to graduate school. And then when I came out, I, I wound up working in telecom. And then um, during the uh, internet wave in the 90s, made way, my way to Silicon Valley. And then, so I worked for some of the really largest tech companies in the world, like IBM and Cisco. And then I did four startups in a row. And, you know, so progressively like Merlin or Benjamin Mutton moving backwards. So now it's just me and the dog in the home office. So, but from working with hundreds of thousands of people to managing thousand people to it's just just me and me and uh, Leonidas the dog. Excellent, excellent. But it's not just you guys. You're at DCVC. Um, yes, is that right? So I, I'm a partner there. DCVC is a deep tech venture fund, and what that means is that we focus on industries that have not had their digital moment: rockets, robots, microbes, synthetic biology, energy. So the the vast bulk of the economy. So most people in tech think about bits and bytes and computers and software, and it's it's quite a large industry, but in the real scheme of things, it's actually quite small, right? So the tech industry is about $4 trillion and the rest of the world is about 80 or $90 trillion. So we're working in those other areas. And after a um, kind of a long 25 year stint in tech, um, I needed to kind of re-energize my brain and move toward breaking some of the patterns of thinking, right? You, you, you become actually kind of ossified in your beliefs and your thinking. And by going into new industries uh, with my firm, uh, I've been able to uh, basically learn again um, as, as an investor and be more of a kind of a mentor and advisor to uh, startups as opposed to, you know, uh, you know, being a combatant from the front lines of go-to-market. Nice. In terms of the role that you take as, as, as the partner in that firm, in, in what areas do you get involved in terms of advising and mentoring those businesses? Is it the full gamut of how to run a business of that, of that scale and size? Uh, well, so, so we invest, right? So I'm an investing partner and um, I have five investments um, that I've either made or inherited in the firm. So, you know, we lock off there are interests as investors if you've taken venture money. And, you know, sometimes it is helping um, a CEO put together a team, validate the product market fit or go to market strategy. Startups are inevitably hungry, so they constantly need to be fed in terms of capital formation and fundraising. Startup executives are a little like politicians. They're almost always running for office. So they're almost always inevitably, you know, every couple of years and sometimes more frequently, they're always fundraising to do that. And then obviously, mm -hmm. and if you do this successfully, there'll be some form of exit. Um, I had a company um, a year ago that actually had an IPO, which was really exciting, uh, a company called nice. Evolve Technology. And then you know, mm -hmm. sometimes uh, I had another company called Element AI, which was um, a enterprise AI company up in Montreal, which sold the service now. So I mean, ultimately, oh, wow. we, we raise money from limited partners. Uh, we invest on their behalf and, you know, the price of keeping our jobs is we're actually supposed to turn that into something that makes them want to work with us in the future. So for me, I have more of a kind of hands-on operating experience because I had been in tech for so long and then actually been the first 10 employees in four startups. 
So I've nice. kind of run the gamut. Yeah. And, uh, and so you mentioned that obviously that was a real whistle stop tour of your career in tech. What was it that kind of kept you there? So you mentioned that obviously you were in the journalism world, then yeah. you moved over to kind of Silicon Valley and then began your life as far as your third phase, as far as that's concerned. What, um, what was it that kind of kept you there and what, what made that phase last for so long? Well, I, you know, I think if you think about it, I, I really came into tech during the, the growth of the internet in the 90s. And which was a just a remarkable sea change, right? It was not just, you know, we could communicate, right? It, it impacted so many businesses and so many industries. Um, it created a huge amount of disruption, but it also created a lot of new things. So um, to the paradigm of creative destruction, um, I started in e-commerce initially. I actually worked for IBM. I built an e-commerce business. And then I went over to Cisco and we literally built the backbone of the internet. And, wow. you know, everything you think about it, initially, it was for, you know, I could send you an email, but then I could make a phone call. And then I could do a video, right? And, you know, where you're running a recording studio here, over the internet, with software with pretty high fidelity, right? So all of these industries went through transformation. So, you know, to be honest, it was just like exciting to hop in the car and get to work and, you know, build all of this new stuff. And I think that part was really exciting. Also, um, you you really got to invent, right? I, I know my, my friend Robin Daniels always talks about fake it until you make it. And, you know, I've, I've got a little bit of that over my shoulder as well. But it's the tech industry is a unique industry that people will invest in things that didn't exist and try it. And if it doesn't work, they just pick themselves back up and, and do it again. I mean, one of my best experiences, and I think why I was in it so long, is my first startup was not a financial success. And and I landed in another company that was dramatic airspace that got eventually acquired by Cisco that really built the approach for, for large organizations to put Wi-Fi in. And yeah. the thing about it, Wi-Fi is the most liberating thing in the planet. We used to crawl around, look for places to plug in your laptop, right? And the ability to, to communicate and to work or to watch movies or whatever you wanted to do anywhere. So it was pretty exciting. So I think for me, there was so much energy around the birth of the internet as a commercial medium. That's, I think, what kept me in it. And we're just kind of twisting the Rubik's Cube into different spaces and new areas. So um, I, I couldn't imagine, right? I mean, you know, you know, it seemed like 25 years is a long time, but it, to me, it was like every day was really exciting. So I, I think, and just unbelievable people, met incredible founders, inventors, like it's like, it's different than like going to work, but, you know, you know, punching your nine to five Monday to Friday. It was, it was, uh, I can't believe actually somebody actually paid us to do it. <laughs> yeah. You know, I completely agree. Actually, one of the reasons, well, the reason why this podcast is called the change makers is because we were, we repositioned our agency a little while ago, a couple of years ago. And we were talking about, you know, do we position ourselves as a creative agency for, for tech firms, B2B tech brands? How do we look at that? So we asked a couple of our clients and one of them said, actually, do you know what? They're a, a, a data security firm. They said, we don't, we don't actually see us, ourselves as being in the business of technology. We see ourselves as being in the business of change. And it made so much sense. You know, they are, and, and companies exactly in the way you've described them and the businesses that you were involved in, they have changed the world, you know, unbelievably, almost unrecognizably. So it's really, really incredible. Just going back to your kind of early days there. So, you know, you, talk, you mentioned Robin Daniels, for instance, one of our more recent podcast guests. And he talked about part of the reason he wanted to get into that world was because he was a kind of, was in sort of web development and he was interested in the techie side of things. That doesn't really seem like it was the case for you. So what was it that initially sparked that move into there? And what was it 
about yourself that you've had to learn and develop to stay there and to progress? It's, it's a great question. So by the way, I started my career as a product manager. Okay. Which, so for me, and I'm not an engineer, though I don't even try to pretend to play one on Zoom. Uh, but my focus was was really initially on why our, our customers, why users would use a certain application or device. And and for me, it was about translating that as opposed to you know defining the widgets. It's like, why would anybody buy it? Why would they spend time using it? Why would they use it versus someone else's? And so I was always been very curious about that. But I have, you know, I came from a fairly modest background financially. And for me, the excitement is, you know, you were able to upset incumbents or you were able to take on some of the largest tech companies. And, you know, so if you think about like the hero's journey and that kind of narrative, that was what's so appealing to me to be able to intercept an industry in its transition and create a whole bunch of good trouble. I kind of like the mischief part of it. And that I think that's just, I was that kind of kid and, uh, earlier on. So the journey of me for go to market really was the psychological element or the narrative about why buyers buy technology, why they use technology, why they were adopting technology. And that was the part that I got excited about. And that's what I brought back to the, you know, in my role initially as a product manager, and then as a go-to-market leader, as a chief marketing officer, which is, you know, there's a Latin phrase that lawyers use, cui bene, which means who benefits. And a lot of tech companies and a lot of marketers fall into the trap of saying, we've built this really cool scuff. Let me tell you about it. And uh, I say that's like the equivalent of being on a speed date. You go out on a speed date, you're sitting across the table from somebody. And that's something I've, I've, I've done in a very long time. But, um, you know, I'm on a speed date and, um, you know, this is, and you say, oh, tell me about yourself. And you give me one or two. Oh, wait, wait, let me tell you about me, right? It's not about you. It's about me. And I think that's the failure. And to me, the excitement was always to reverse that which is what do they care about and then project that back. And I think that is the essential skill for marketers, whether they are consumers or their B2B spaces. And, and that part to me was really the exciting part. And that part I actually had some skill in as a failed novelist. I was always interested in the, the, the narrative, the buyer's narrative initially yeah. as an outbound. And then of course, you know, for, for the folks who, you know, do go to market work, that are listening to your podcast, increasingly the amount of analytics that were available. Like you had a kind of like you would talk to 10 people and you'd come up with a conclusion. Now you can A, B test 15,000 people in a, in a week and actually know what people want. So um, that that was really for me the part that I think I got you know reasonably decent at doing. Excellent. Yeah. And, um, you know, what's really interesting about your journey, especially from my point of view, and I guess our audience as well, is that you right now, obviously, you're um, you're an investor. You um, advise a lot of firms, but also you advise you, well, you advise a lot of CEOs at big firms, but also you advise their CMOs as well. What are the challenges that, that CMOs are facing at the moment in terms of their business and how are you helping them navigate them? Well, I mean, you know as well as I, I do, Dave, that if you're a chief marketing officer right now and there's a downturn, the first thing you're going to face is a budget cut or a restriction, right? And it just yes. marketing tends to be hit early, um, not always wisely, uh, because frequently marketing is actually the oxygen pipe for creating new business. Um, I think you have to pay attention to very carefully as chief marketing officer of what your value proposition is opening for the market. 
and I'll, and I will give you an example of something that I worked on. And it was actually a large company. Um, I was working at um, Cisco. In, uh, they had acquired a company of mine in 2009, and I was running the enterprise segment from a go-to-market. And the global financial crisis hit. And it was pretty ugly time, a lot worse than I think what we're facing now. And not only were people stressed financially, organizations, they didn't even want to see us. They're saying, oh, you want to come refresh my network infrastructure? Come back in a year or two. Literally, they felt there was no reason to engage with us. And I mean, and if you're if you're in a marketing leader, it's like that is actually the death spiral. If, if your customers don't even want to talk to you or hear about what you're doing, it's like you're in pretty bad shape. Um, we created this thing um, that was called Five Ways to Thrive. And it was saying, look, if you are struggling financially, this is how our technology can save you money. And But however, if you are doing okay and you had a strong balance sheet, particularly larger companies, you could use this period of time to gain advantage over your competitors. So I think marketers have to look at the macroeconomic um, trends that their customers are going through and think about it through their eyes. Uh, because you could be building, you know, if your competitors are financially weak and you're not, you could be building a lot of market share. And so then you need to show them how you're going to contribute to that. If you are in a marketing role and your customers are struggling, uh, well, you better help them save money or time from people, right? It's like, look, you run an agency. And right now, I think this is a great time to be in the agency business because a lot of people are going to be constricted on staff, but they see agencies as things that they can turn on and off. Uh, so more people may be willing to look at an agency role uh, you know, bringing on an agency to help them these because the work still needs to be done. And, yeah. you know, and you might wind up building a much longer, stronger, long-term relationship uh, was in, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so I think those are things that I think marketers should think about and how you think about this in this context. So, so this is the complete, this is all about you. It's not about me phase when things are really good and people are like a year ago, when the supply chains are constrained and the economy was strong, if you were a car manufacturer, this was the ultimate time, right? Because people waited online, they would pay full price, they would do a lot of things because there was no supply, but they had the economics to get it. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm, I have two graduate degrees in economics. And, you know, so I always, economics definitely dictate a lot of consumer behavior. And I think you just have to put yourself as a marketer in that mindset and then figure out what you're bringing to market and how it fits in, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes so much sense. And I think it, what's really interesting that you just touched on there is two things. First of all, necessity is the mother invention. You know, we always say here that, you know, creativity with constrictions often brings out the best. But also um, that that kind of turning a negative into a positive, turning a challenge into an opportunity. Is that something that you try and impart as much as possible into your into your clients and their CMOs? Yeah, no, I, I do. And I, well, the way I would say this is that, by the way, I, you know, for me, I think there's a couple of things that CMOs have to pay attention to. They really have to understand the psychographics and the mentality of their buyers. And sometimes, for example, I, I'm here in Silicon Valley, right, which is the as close to the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz you're ever going to find in tech, right? It's a rarefied environment. You know, people, there are many people that are doing well financially. You can be very insulated, but the real world is not as insulated. So you have to kind of remove your blinders. 
to who you're really dealing with. If, if you're a consumer marketer and your customer's having a hard time paying their petrol bill for their car to get to work, they're going to forego a bunch of luxuries that you might be selling them. You have to really think about that. But for marketers, what I always say is, what game are you playing? And the biggest challenge as a marketer is that, you know, what, let's say you get hired as a CMO and you were a CMO at a prior company. They hire you because of what you've done, what your experience and what your skills are. But the challenge that you always have to have is saying is that I have all this great experience, but when I go from situation A to situation B, maybe 50% of it is applicable. And 50% of it is not applicable because I'm in a different game than I was. So the hard part is to parse it and to recognize what you're not going to do. Like what, what your patterns have told you to do, right? I think a lot of people, for example, when social media became a very important part of how people interact um, and as journalism started to die, you know, this concept that we're going to have a press release and everybody's going to hear about us or we're going to do an ad in a trade publication. And it's like, it's kind of not really how a lot of people gather information anymore. So, you know, yeah. that's the tactics of a game to do that. But how people see you is really important. So if you're a B2B marketer and you are bringing out a new product, let's say you want to build the next CRM and you're going to try to take a bite out of Salesforce, which I would say good luck with that. But um, <laughs> to do that, um, you know, doing a direct comparison is probably not going to be a smart strategy. Like you might have been at a large, like you may have gone from Oracle which is not afraid to compete with Salesforce, though I think Salesforce tends to win in their space. But they're, you know, they're a $20 billion company and they're not really afraid and they don't really have any risk to do it. But if you are a smaller company and you're going to go up against them, you have to really show differentiation and you have to segment your buyers and you have to do a lot of things that you may have not done in your last role. So the issue is what game you're playing, what do you represent in the market? Think about it more like a chessboard. And yeah, yeah exactly. um, and I and I think that's that's really hard to do because what made you successful is kind of part of your own brand identity and self-identity as a go-to-market leader. However, it may not be quite as applicable in the new situation. Yeah, for sure. And I think especially at the moment, you know, I think a lot of CMOs will be taking a long, hard look at what game they're playing in this current environment as well. So obviously, I think there's something famous about the average tenure of a CMO, something like 18 months, and it always keeps coming down. So there's a lot of movement within that world. But I think certainly from what we see with some of our clients is um, not only are a lot of CMOs kind of stepping into new roles and, and bringing what they do bring to the table, but also trying to figure out how they adapt to that role in, in this current market where there is a slowdown, you know, it, yeah. Maybe not quite as drastic as other as other bear markets, but but they they have to fight for every every portion of revenue and, and every metric and every every everything that they're trying to do. Well, and, and maybe one more thing that, if I might, Dave, that makes me think about this. So, in my last real work job when I was at Illumia, where I was chief commercial officer, you know, it was the first time I was able to own sales and marketing for a period of time. I, I ran both of them, and I think CMOs need to start to think about themselves more as the general manager of go to market and less about the technical skills of whether it's kind of product marketing and positioning or you know revenue marketing and demand generation. Um, because if you are a CEO or your general manager, you're saying, look, I have a $10 million a year budget I can spend on go to market. 
fairly significant advanced, let's say SaaS company that's got 30 or $40 million of ARR in their business, you need to kind of, dis, you need to say like, at the end of the day, that's a composite spent, right? That's all that we can afford. How that gets split between sales and marketing and what is going to be more effective because at some point in time, you know, on the revenue side of things, you have the same exact goal. There are other things you need to do. Sales has a relationship thing with customers. They're, they're not the same, but there's a huge overlap in the Venn diagram. So I think the most important thing marketing folks can do is, is to think about it from this holistic view of go to market for the, um, for their company and, you know, be extremely aligned with sales. And some of the best situations I've seen sales leaders fund marketing programs because they realize it's going to be a much more effective way to do that. But you can only do that if you, you treat yourself to that mentality of saying, I, I'm, an, I'm a leader in this part of the business. Or vice versa and saying, you know what, you know, right now we just need people to go out and meet with other people. And, you know, I'm going to not run that program. I'm going to put it over there in sales. I think that's, yeah. and you know, because larger companies, it gets harder because things become much more siloed and there's a little bit of, you know, like, you know, Mark had a, had a lot of marketers measure love. It's by the size of their budget. You don't love me very much. <laughs> um, I won't say who, but I had a very famous successful marketer that worked for me at, at uh, Cisco years ago. And that person, I'm being super careful here, if you didn't notice, came into my <laughs> office and said, I don't have enough money to do my job. And I said, look, you have $22 million. I took down an entire industry with $2 million, like figure it out. Right. So, you know, I think, I think marketers should be very zero based and how they think about their investments in people in programs and, and dollars and saying if every, you know, basically renewing that every six months in their mind saying, would I continue doing that or not? And that, yeah. that's, yeah, yeah, and definitely. I think this, this kind of environment really makes you, you think about that, by the way, I think it's great training Ultimately, if, you know, there aren't that many CMOs that make it to CEO, occasionally they do. And if you really have aspiration to take on a larger role in your company or a different company at some point in time, that kind of thinking, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's interesting, you know, when we were getting ready for the call, you were talking about chief creative officers, you know, in certain companies, like, I, I mean, I think Steve Jobs was the chief, and then with Jonathan Ivey, was the chief creative officer of Apple who happened to build products, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. And so you can go as far as you want if that's your ambition. I'm not saying that should be everybody's ambition, but you have to kind of espouse that, that whole market, whole company mentality. And, and marketers are in a tremendous position to do that because they really think about the intersection um, of, of customers and market dynamics and then, and then companies and products. It's your role as a marketing leader. And so I think it's your role to be able to lay out and then define the value that you're delivering to the organization and to bring more people along to the journey. I'd say the most successful go-to-market leaders I've led, you know, I've, know, run into in my career are people that bring the whole organization along. And, you know, one of the things I learned early on, like my first successful startup airspace, the engineers had all the press clippings in their cubicle, sometimes on the wall. 
They care just as much. And you're like, you know, these people are just kind of locked in a cubicle, banging out zeros and ones all day in C++, right? It's like, geez, like, but they actually really care. So, you know, the marketing role has to be inbound as well as outbound. It doesn't mean you're going to define all the features of a product or service. I mean, there are product managers that do that. But if you're not sensitive to that and aware of how to bring that along, because the other things that I think marketers have to understand is not only explaining to the founders and the executives, you also want many times the technical and the engineering teams to do remarkable things for the company. And if they can't see the impact and what it means, it's very hard to be inspired, right? I mean, you know, in a lot of people work for startups for, you know, less than optimal wages, though they've pulled up a lot in the last couple of years, and they do it for the equity, right? The stock that they're being granted to be an owner in the company. They want to know how that's going to become valuable. And they want to know why their work is meaningful. And they want to know why people use their products. They actually care deeply. So as a marketer, you if you have that lens, it's amazing how many people you can bring along. Because think about it. If you're going to try to bring the market along, your customers along, you should be able to bring your own team along at the same time. And if you're not paying attention to it, you're you're missing a big piece of the job. And you can do it lots of ways. You can do it through illustrating customer stories. And all the companies that I work at always had every week we'd have like the Friday all hands. There was always here's how customers the feedback they're giving you. Because that's, that's what you care about if you build something um, to do that. So I don't think there are bad founders and bad um, go-to-market people. I think people are definitely wired differently, right and left brain. That's real. It's, it's, it's how you, you manage across. I just, to me, that's just one more challenge, right? But you just, I just look at you know, you know, a founder that may not have a go-to-market background. is just That's a really tough customer. What am I going to do to convince them? <laughs> that's absolutely fascinating i never quite thought about it. the ability of the cmo actually to be that uh, glue that brings everybody together including the founders as well and the leaders and inspiring them as well so that's that's really interesting stuff um i just wanted to move on slightly and just kind of get your view on um on the future of enterprise tech go to market really is this where things are going up it's certainly where things are going from a SaaS point of view but what, what about the future of enterprise tech go to market in general it's it's a great it's a great question what i would say is that there's a couple of things that people have to really pay attention to. The first one is that if you look at the growth of enterprise tech, so according to Gartner, which is a pretty good proxy, the enterprise tech market is about $4 trillion, but it's only growing in the low single digits. And so which means right now it's actually growing less than inflation. So that means there isn't right now a huge explosive Cambrian revolution where people are putting more capital work Things are moving to different areas. So on-premises spend moved to cloud. Packaged software moved to SaaS. So, you know, some companies are actually going back in the other direction. Those are things to do that. So if you're going to be extremely effective in this market, you're going to have to be able to convince people to abandon incumbents if you want to build a very large company because it, when when the pie is growing everybody can grab pieces when the pie is not growing you have it has to come out of somebody else's pocket so 
you know, there are, there's a there's an old phrase that I, I really love, and it's that if you are an enterprise technology and you spend more nights eating dinner with strangers than your family, your product sucks. <laughs> like, think about it. You have to eat with people and take them out to dinner to convince them to adopt your product. Not exactly. Or you just like, don't like your family. Or you don't like your family. Yes, that's, like, that's <laughs> another way to look at it. There are, I do know some people who hide on the road, right? So I get it. But, um, <laughs> but you, know, like, you know, Apple doesn't spend a nickel on salespeople to convince you to buy an iPhone. Right. Your perception is that this is the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy. It's the greatest thing ever. And I always want to have the newest edition. It's, it's an incredible. It's not a B2B example. But if you look at a lot of SaaS or you look at things around the cloud, you know, those things are actually increasingly taking more um, investment and more focus to change. And I think so you have to really be paying attention to that. And um, I have a I have an approach in dealing with incumbents. So I've been on both sides. Um, I have built four startups. One was a complete fireball and an aqua hire. The other two had giant exits, and the last one is a is a cybersecurity unicorn that's doing extremely well. Um, and I have this approach where, being early, I will tr- tend to only work on companies that are going to dethrone a large incumbent. And I actually go right at that large incumbent pretty early in the market for one very simple reason. The people who can see the differentiation between you and an incumbent in the industry are the people you want to work on with early. The others that are like, I'm not so sure. Who are you? Are you going to run out of money? Like, you're kind of small. Why would I use you? You're going to sell to them later. So I look at go-to-market and and effectively uh, marketing conflict as a segmentation exercise. And uh, yeah, no, I think it's really important. And I think a lot of marketers are afraid of that. They're saying, don't do that. But you have to be ready. The other, I mean, in in other markets, you could be saying, hey, there are four incumbents. Go, let me go pick off some of the weak ones first and then work my way up. So when I was at Airspace, you know, there was Cisco was number one in Wi-Fi, then Symbol, then a company called um, Proxim. We complete, Proxim didn't have a product. For the new, the new, we just picked them off. I took their best sales team. We ate their channel. We swallowed their customer base, and then we laddered up. So I think when you look at the future of enterprise tech, you have to say, are there going to be new categories? And if there are, then you know you can go into them. But if they're not, and if you're trying to get people to go from one CRM to another or a vertical SaaS versus a general SaaS, you have to make that differentiation very clear to them. But in, but the other part of it is that you have to cater to marketers that markets that include a lot more developers than people who used to buy packaged software or you know network infrastructure or storage or you know the kind of the, the building blocks of a lot of enterprise tech and you so you you have to kind of shift left and that's where product led growth I think plays a role which is giving people just enough of a product to try it. And, you know, want to get them basically hooked on it. So I think it's going to be increasingly a bigger part. And then you have to also pay attention to where the budget is. Is the budget still held centrally by IT organizations? The thing about a lot of product-led growth is they work their way up in the buying cycle. So I, I have a freemium often. You know, it's like somebody downloads this, they start to play with it. 
I have a small license that, you know, some people used to put them on expense reports, but it can become a DeMarc departmental space event. And then ultimately, how would I take down the whole entity of a customer? So um, I think marketing is going to be more like warfare than it has been in <laughs> a long it time. Is, yeah, I know. I, I really think where, you know, there, there was a very famous marketer uh, who died a couple of weeks later, Al Reese from Travel Reese, the guys that yes, were positioning. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And they also wrote a great book called Marketing Warfare about that. And they were, I mean, I'm old, so they kind of got me. I was kind of started in that era. And so I think you're going to be fighting a lot. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of companies. I mean, for example, in cybersecurity, there's something like 7,500 startups. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, you're going to have more of a warfare plan. So I think there's a lot of that. And then the other part is that there's just the consumerization. Of there are technologies that are making their way into organizations now that have started in like consumers like the AirPods that you know the or you were in Beats you know the the, the devices that we're wearing are replacing the Plantronics and Jabra headsets that yeah. you know used to be in call centers. Apple's AirPod division is like fifteen billion, twelve or fifteen billion dollars. The run yeah, rate of Jabra and Plantronics is one billion each, and I mean they did it in fifteen minutes. So I mean, so I think there's just a bunch of trends. You just have to see where you know product like growth is one of them, but some of the others that I think can you bring it to consumer technology into B two B? Yeah, just um, really interesting you touch on cybersecurity actually, because first of all, if you look at that market, that feels very much like warfare. If you take some of the language around it, cybersecurity companies talking about battle, defend, protect, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, the reason I ask partly is because we work with a couple of cybersecurity firms. And obviously, when you talk about sectors that are growing or categories that are growing within them, um, you look at cybersecurity for obvious reasons, really, right? You know, it's um, ransomware is, is, is just running amok at the moment. What kind of, apart from a, a great product and the ability to challenge some of the big, big players, what, what does it take to survive and grow in such a hyper competitive market like cybersecurity? So it's a really good question, and um, I'm not sure I have 100% of an answer for you. You know, what I would say is that cybersecurity is the only industry where no single vendor can actually absolutely guarantee they're going to do the one thing you want, which is keep them safe, right? <laughs> they are various forms of vitamins and surgery, right? There, there are, I mean, there, there's a lot of kind of healthcare analogies, but there isn't one single piece of it that does everything. So it forces the buyers to become effectively hunters and gatherers. They're connoisseurs of an array of that. I would say what I see very few marketers do, and I think it's important, is to lay out how your technology fits into the scope of everything else they're doing. Right? You're you're putting, you know, software on your endpoints, and you're using multi-factor authentication to prove your identity, and you are putting firewalls or segmentation, you're doing all of these things. So when a bot to, if you want to grow quickly in cybersecurity, you have to lay out what your technology does in the context of the other things they're doing, as opposed to them making them figure it out. It's like if you've ever ordered something and it comes in a box and you have to assemble it and the instructions are not in a language you speak and there are no tools. That is what I think a lot of cybersecurity is. And, you know, so what I would say is the, the phrase in my mind is in cyber is what can your customers count on you for? 
what am I relying on you to do for me? And how does that fit into that architecture? And that's, I see very little of it. And one is like, we have the answer. We've solved ransomware. And it's like, that's great. Prove it to me, right? In fact, sometimes the overarching statement is the one that hurts you the most and go to market because they're saying, well, what does that mean? As opposed to yeah, saying, look, these yeah. are the five things you must do. We're taking care of boxes one and a little bit of box two for you. So it's, um, I, I, you know, I like to say that buyers actually don't love choice. They love packages, right? I mean, I, I'm not a fast food eater, but the actual value meal has absolutely killed every other fast food hamburger in the planet, right? In fact, Burger King used to say, have it your way. It's like, actually, you just want to tell people this is what we have. You go into a restaurant. You don't say, look, well, you've got salmon and then you've got dill and you've got, you know, um, the basmati rice. They say, we have made you, you know, salmon amandine, right? And like you order something that is packaged and prepared in a recipe. Why? And I'm, I'm being a little bit glib for the sake of it, but why wouldn't you do some of that in cybersecurity and other enterprise technologies as opposed to making them all assemble yourself? Right. In fact, even some of the food companies that showed up, they were doing well during COVID. I haven't tracked them. They were meal kits. Everything you need for yeah. a meal is in this box. Mm. It was a healthy alternative to just ordering takeaway. And, and it was kind of fun because you got to cook it and you, you actually say, look, I made something. I don't have any skill as a chef, but I look, it looks pretty good. They, people take a picture. They put it on Instagram. They were proud of themselves. So I think you have to get back to a little bit to human nature of being a problem solver as opposed to a solution provider. Going back to that point you made before about helping buyers really understand the benefits. If you understand the benefits, you have peace of mind. If you have peace of mind then you're confident that ultimately, you know, this isn't going to affect things in a negative way. And one other tip, lose the gibberish. I have yeah, to say cybersecurity sure. has the worst syntax. People should learn how to write and speak in plain sentences to Absolutely. what your customers are. I mean, you know, they speak in buzzwords and GORP. Yeah. Especially and, with the more niche elements of cybersecurity as well, you know, but obviously now we're going into different endpoint network, API, email security, all those kind of things. But what I see, and you might agree with this, what I see so often is companies talking about what they do. We do API security. We do this. We secure your APIs, but not why they do it or the, the benefits that it brings, why it helps their audiences do their jobs better, lead better lives, have more peace of mind. And, and I get that you can't do it in a really kind of, you know, dismissive, overarching way that doesn't actually get to the nub of those benefits. But still, see far too many companies just literally focus, just put a badge on it, what they do. And, and, and their competitors do exactly the same thing. So they're all badging themselves in the same way. Well, yeah. And by the way, if you're a startup, that just plays to the incumbent, right? If it all yeah. sounds like gibberish, you just might as well buy it from somebody you, you know is not going out of business and you trust. And uh, it comes down to thinking about people as people then as buyers, mm. and then as technologists, and then as organizations. The other part you have to remember is that you're dealing with an audience that are looking at screens all day long, and they are True. beaten to death, right? It's like, you know, getting in people's attention span. A couple of other things I think people miss, a little humor helps, a little humility helps. You know, I think there are just because you can do business with somebody you like or somebody you, or you can ignore people you don't like. 
And I don't think people talk about likability, right? And look, at the end of the day, likability is not a substitute for competency. But if you don't take yourself too seriously, we are the epic warrior that will save you from the bad North Korean hackers. And it's like, it's, and that may be true, but it is just not what people are really looking for is like, reverse yourself. What is their issue? Like, what are, what are the things maybe something here? Not enough skills, not enough people, not enough budget, huge amount of stress. It's very hard to feel like you're being attacked all the time, which is a lot of defense that you play. It gets exhausting. Right. I mean, mm -hmm. just like think about, yeah. you know, like it's uh, it's if you can remove some of that, you know, it's very interesting. There's a company that I advise called Attack IQ. And if you go to their website, their 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 motto is, is we've got your six, which is just kind of mill, mill speak for like we got your back. And it's like, mm -hmm. you know, it's actually been extremely effective because people understand it's like, OK, do you have my back? I don't expect you to do everything. But are you going to be there for me? Mm -hmm. Are you going to support yeah. me? Those are the kinds of things you you need to, you need to do as opposed to showing pictures of people in the shadows with slouch hats and trench coats yeah there's another one i think they're called i might have got this wrong but i think they might be called trellix they're fairly new i think it was a merger of uh, a division of mcafee and somebody else but um their imagery on their site is basically it's a video that plays behind their um on their homepage just with a load of developers with like they've got face masks on they've got cucumbers they're relaxing in their chairs and it's just all about being relaxed because they're taking care of your cybersecurity and you know I, it just it feels so refreshing because every other firm that i see talks about it in a very as i said it's a war-based narrative people don't like war people don't like fighting people don't like being at war like you said it gets exhausting so yeah like you were living in the uk i mean you know like during the blitzkrieg People were terrified. And then, you know, when the, when the bombings said they went out and they got, they got their, they went to the market, right? Mm. Like at some point in time, like people can just can't, you can't bomb people into submission. It yeah, does, it doesn't exactly. work. People, people have to get on with their life. And I think that's what they, that they want to know. And I, and then it's true in cybersecurity and it's true in a lot of other industries. So, um, yeah. so I, you know, a little consumer psychology goes a long way. It absolutely does. It does. Listen, Alan, honestly, and I mean this now, I, I could talk to you all day. Honestly, I find this stuff absolutely fascinating. I think your experience and your point of view is, is remarkable. So I really, really thank you for your time now. I just wanted to, to end, if I, if I may, and actually it's a question that we ask all of our guests. And this might be challenging for you because you've been through so many experiences and so many businesses with it. But um, I just wondered if there's, amongst all the kind of firms that you've led, you've been part of, you've invested in, or um, you've been a partner with even, is there an experience or a particular role that you would say is, is a highlight above any other that you've, that you've experienced? Um, wow, that's a great question. What I would say is that when you're in a company with people, and I'm, so I'm going to take my VC hat off for a moment and put my startup hat on for a moment. Um, I've been part of teams that have had a material impact on people's lives. Meaning when the company other went public or got sold, uh, kids' college funds were put away, people were able to buy a house. It gave them, and it's not they got rich, but it, it, it was material to their lives. And it turns out, you know, people in startup communities tend to work with each other again and again. And I've had people cycle through four companies with me now. So being able to make an impact on people's lives and their families, like that's what I'm most proud of, right? We sent a lot of kids to college, a lot of people to buy their first home. 
right? We lost some people to retire. And like, so to me, the point of that, that, that was um, extremely, extremely important to me. Um, looking forward, putting my VC hat on, if we can make the planet less hot, less fractitious, um, makes goods and services more democratic and more available to more people, then I'll know that my work going onwards, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm still to get to that one, but that's the next goal for me, which is just leaving the planet for my kids just a little better off than, than they would have had otherwise. That's, that's my goal. Wow. Wow. And if we ever talk again, I really hope you achieve that because first of all, it's so important. And second of all, that's certainly the most heartwarming answer I've ever had to this question. So that's, uh, yeah, that's absolutely fantastic. And it makes so much sense. We could get into the bones of wealth creation and the way that, you know, um, the markets work in terms of, you know, how capitalism kind of benefits or doesn't benefit certain people. But at the end of the day, you know, it's really rewarding and it's really heartwarming to see that you kind of focus on that above above anything else. So really, really fantastic. That might actually be the best answer I think we've had on the podcast, to be honest with you. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> Took a long time to um, get listen, here, but we got there. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Listen, Alan, yeah. thank you again. Really, really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me on The Changemakers and have a great rest of your day.